Hello, this is episode 274 and in it, I want to follow on from my last episode about the three challenges when working with a volume builder and in this episode I'm going to share some key tips about how to get it right in a volume builder process. So if you haven't listened to my last episode it's also going to be really great information for you if you are considering a volume builder for your new build project. So that's episode 273. Now working with a volume builder it's a very different uh, process to a custom design approach. But it doesn't mean that you actually have to endure a particular type of project experience or build a substandard home or even get locked out of being involved in seeing your home dreams become reality. Understanding the best way to work with a volume builder is great for improving your project experience and helping you create a great home as well. We have Home Method members that have taken a volume builder approach in their project for a range of reasons and being educated and informed has helped them make a big difference to the process and a big difference to their home. So listen in as I share some tips with you to really help you if this is going to be the approach that you're thinking of choosing for your new build. Now remember if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode plus information on the resources that I share, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 274. That's the numbers 274. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. As I said in the intro, 
Building with a volume builder is a very different process to doing a custom home with a traditional team of an architect or a building designer and then working with a custom residential builder. And it's even different to working with a design build or a design construct company. I've done a podcast episode on what that involves. So if you are looking at working with a design construct company, check out episode 197 if you want more information about that. Now in this episode, I want to share some key tips with you to help you be better prepared if you're considering working with a volume builder for your new build. So let's dive straight in because I've got a bit to get through in this episode. Here's my first tip. So tip number one, don't assume that building with a volume builder is the least expensive way to build a new home. What volume built homes mainly do is they of course eliminate the fees and the timeline associated with designing a home. However, there is still a raft of fees and costs that you'll pay in the lead up to construction that you need to factor in and ask a lot of questions about so that they don't surprise you. You will on average find that volume built homes are a lower cost per square metre than building with a custom builder. And this is for a raft of reasons, mostly related to what can simply happen when you're building the same homes over and over at scale and you're working with the same suppliers, subcontractors and trades at scale as well. Comparing a volume built home to a custom home, it's just not an apples with apples comparison. And understandably, many people do do it though. So they discuss projects with architects, building designers and builders. They establish rough estimates for the type of home that they want to build. And then they walk into a display village or they go online and they find that they can usually get a much larger home for the same price that they're being estimated by custom in the custom process. But it's not the same type of home. It's not the same type of build. You simply can't use price as a means of comparing the two. And yes, I know it's a logical comparison and of course you have a budget and you want to know what your money will buy you. But if you're comparing a volume built home to a custom designed bespoke one-off home, you're simply not comparing things that are in the same class or in the same category. Now saying that the volume built home is not always the cheapest, especially if you are needing to customise your project at all. And I've seen time and time again that homeowners have assumed that a volume built home will be the most affordable way of building a new home. They dive into the process and then moving through the upgrades, the variations and the customizations that have all been agreed to and bought into in incremental ways. And inevitably they end up with a build cost that doesn't match the advertised price. And, and you can see prices be even one and a half times, even twice as much as the base advertised price in order to achieve a finished home, deal with site works pre-construction and have some basic landscaping. And I've had members do huge analysis of this. I've done huge analysis of this, the prices can move quite considerably between what's advertised and what you actually end up paying. So don't assume that a volume built or project home is all that you can afford or that it's going to be the least expensive way to build a new home because it's simply not true. Um, I've had Home Method members who work with larger builders who are doing a bigger number of homes every year. So they have some of that economy of scale opportunity. They'll still work though with a custom design and that will come at that whole process and that home will come out cheaper than the volume built home using a pre-designed plan. So volume built homes are not always the cheapest alternative when you're building a new home. My tip number two is to choose a design to suit your site. So just because you're choosing something that is pre-designed doesn't mean that you have to choose a floor plan or a home design that doesn't suit the orientation of your site. In fact, it's actually crazy to do this. It's simply a waste of money, a waste of opportunities and a waste of the potential for your future home. 
If you're unsure about your site's orientation and how to choose a design for it, then have a listen to season one and season two of the podcast as a start. It's going to provide you with a lot of useful insights. If you have a north to street site, I mentioned this in the last episode, it can be more challenging to find a volume built home that suits that orientation, but it's not impossible. Okay, so one option you might have is to look for a home design that has a seasonal approach to its living spaces. So it might have a living room at the front as well as the rear of the home. So you can have a a winter living space on the front of your home that makes the most of the sunlight and the warmth at that time of year when you're in a north to street site. And then in the summertime living, that can all happen on the rear or it can happen at the eastern side of the home based on the plan that you choose where it's going to be cooler over those warmer months due to the orientation. Whatever you do though, please don't choose a floor plan that places your garage on the northeast corner of your site because unfortunately your driveway will be the best place to entertain and hang out and it really hurts my heart every time I see someone do this. The cars get the best spot on the site and not the humans. Please note as well that as we move into seven star requirements for our energy efficiency assessments, it's going to be increasingly difficult and expensive to ignore the orientation of a site and just plonk any home on it. And you'll find as you get to the pointy end of applying for building permits prior to construction and you're getting your energy efficiency assessment done in the process, that if you haven't considered the orientation of your site and you're just choosing a design that's, you know, that you like and not one that's suitable for the orientation of the site, then you're going to need to make a range of costly upgrades in order to get the home to meet its energy efficiency requirements. And this is one of the reasons that the volume builder sector has been so against these national construction code changes in this increase in the star rating and they've pushed back on them for years. Uh, It's because they know it's going to cause challenges in their process and they won't just be able to whack any of their homes on any site anymore. So choose a design that suits the orientation of the site. It's going to make your energy efficiency assessment process much simpler overall and it'll frankly it'll just make your home much better overall as well. So tip number three, consider whether customization is worthwhile. The affordability and the scale of these volume builder companies is based on repetition. That is, the floor plan is designed once and then it's used a multitude of times and everyone learns how to do it super efficiently and that efficiency translates to what you have to pay. You know, the full set of construction drawings that already exists as a base and that just gets tweaked for what's necessary for your site as part of your approvals and construction. So customization, of course, can will blow this totally out of the water and this will vary based on the builder, but I've seen the most astronomical prices get charged for variations and customizations purely because the business model of these businesses doesn't support tailoring things to your individual needs and choices. So if you do want to customize the design, then have a great reason. Okay. So it might be that you're enabling the design to suit its orientation more effectively. If you're customizing things in a design just because you like most of the plan, but not all of it, then you may be better off just looking for a different floor plan altogether. Many companies, I find they will promote pre-contract that customizations are totally okay, that they're really able to accommodate them and that you can have the exact home that you want. But once you've paid your deposit and you've committed and then you start to see the premium that you're going to pay to access these customizations, it may not seem as accessible to you as you initially thought. So, I mean, some customizations that can be valid, as I said, are those ones that will suit, help your home suit the orientation of the site. And then also those that will help you improve the energy efficiency of your home and the long-term performance of your home as well. So for example, you know, we've had Home Method members, they will discuss different weather resistant barriers with their 
their volume builder because their volume builder by standard uses foil sarking and foil sarking is a terrible idea in most instances. And they've also been able to get their builder to improve installation specifications uh, and they've even done things like reviewing the inclusions of things like a blower door test during construction into the build process so that they can get some of that as built verification on the air tightness of the home. Now, some volume builders will be open to these changes and upgrades and some will not be, okay? So, and, and you know, you'll find that especially if it's going to change their streamlined construction process, they can, they can be far less amenable to including these changes. So, if you are considering the inclusion of any specific materials that you want or products or details or parts of the process, then you're going to need to discuss this early with the builder that you're talking to so that you can understand what's possible and realistic and what and whether that's going to be a deal breaker for you if they're not willing to budge. Tip number four is to get informed about your selections. So I remember asking, this is a long time ago, but I remember asking someone inside the volume builder industry this question. So there's those volume builders where the clients as part of the sales process, they'll get this opportunity to make an appointment at a specific all-in-one location. They'll often get fed lunch as part of that appointment. And then they'll make their selections in the comfort of this really luxurious environment where all of their selections are up on the wall and they get to touch and feel them and it's lovely and it's all in one place. How does the volume builders that do this actually cover the cost of building those kinds of centres and running that type of process? Is it just considered a marketing expense uh, to build locations for like that for customers? You know, it's one that gives them as a builder a point of differentiation in the marketplace so it entices more customers or is does it just the cost of that just gets broken down as part of the cost of building a home with them and it's factored somewhere into what the customer pays anyway? Now, their response to this question was this. These types of selection centres, are they're purely a profit centre for these companies. And because what homeowners actually forget when they walk through the door of, of one of these locations and experience a sales experience like this, is that the cost of a particular range of fixtures and fittings is already included in their build cost. They've already got all, all of these items are already specified and already included in their build cost and everything that they're looking at and being seduced by and being presented with is a series of upgrades to the items that are already included in their build. And the upgrades that they're seeing, they're usually at a much higher purchase cost and they're also at hugely higher profit margins, sometimes 30 and 40% profit margins. You know, and that's significant compared to the profit margins that are on other things. So inside Home Method, I teach homeowners generally to be making their selections well before they've signed their building contract so that any pricing in their contract reflects the things that they actually want in their future home, the fixtures, the finishes, the items. Now, this, this isn't really possible when you're working with a volume builder due to how they run their process and when they sort of invite you in to be able to make those selections and choose your materials, colours, fixtures and finishes and things. However, you will be able to drill down into the details of what selections are available to you prior to signing a contract with a volume builder and get some feedback on the price differences as well. You know, often volume builders, they'll have arrangements with specific suppliers and they may have packages of finishes and fixtures that you can select from. You know, this of course helps them manage their pricing. They can potentially access savings because they're buying the same products in bulk from their suppliers across a range of projects. And of course, it's going to streamline estimates and orders for them as well. So before you're signing on with a volume builder, ask questions about who are their suppliers and, you know, do some research on the brands that they, they use 
If your budget's not going to extend to what's in the display home, which is usually sort of the upper end, then find out what the range is that's actually included in your base price and see what it's like. You know, check warranties, check quality levels, check whether you actually like the products and finishes that you're going to be able to choose from, whether they're that base range or something else. It's most likely going to vary from builder to builder and some ranges as well, they may be exclusive to particular builders and not available in other locations. So just check what is, uh, is available to you and, and you can work through that process. So on to my tip number five, which is know what is specified and will be included in your price and your finished home and what isn't. Now, when I did my secret shopping at a display village, which I talked about in the last episode, one thing I found really challenging in the process of conversations with these sales consultants was drilling into exactly what was included in the advertised base price of the home versus what what I was seeing in the displays as I walked through them. Now, there might have even been a brochure or some marketing material that was really clearly outlining what was in the display versus what was in the base price. But as I sat with the sales consultant and discussed the details further, I could still identify things that hadn't been mentioned that were in the display but weren't in the base price. Many of the base prices that you'll see advertised for particular volume builders, they won't include light fittings, they won't include floor finishes, driveways, they won't include a suitable slab design based on the variations that your soil test might throw up and a range of other inclusions that are actually necessary for you to have a home that you can move into. It's also worth thinking about what a finished home actually looks like and means to you and your expectations of what that's going to include. Because even turnkey, which is a term that's you know often advertised as the home that you can move into and not need to do anything further, and a lot of builders will say we do turnkey homes, often those turnkey homes will still require extra things to actually finish off the home based on a homeowner's personal preferences and circumstances. So you always need to check. I really dig into this before you pay any deposits, okay? Really sort of find out the details of this. I actually remember when some family of mine, they were looking to buy a house and land package. And so they'd been looking at it for ages. They asked me to go along with them to have an appointment with the sales consultant, discuss the details of it. Now they were really excited because the home was advertised as turnkey. The price was affordable for them at that price point. And they'd already mentally moved into this home. They'd already figured out how they were going to sort of make this all happen. And they were getting really excited about it. So, you know, knowing this, we sat with the sales consultant. And so I just kept asking, okay, and what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And the price just kept moving and moving and moving. And the sales consultant actually had all of the figures of all these extra items, which were simply items required to make the home livable, the site livable, and the home actually suit the conditions of the site. But none of these were being offered up voluntarily. And it really quickly pushed this home for my family members beyond it being affordable for them. And it was incredibly disappointing for them. But it's much better for you to find this out before you've paid a deposit, not after. Usually you're finding out this information after you've paid a deposit and you've already sunk money into the process. Now, tip number six is to know the contract that you're going to be signing with your volume builder because it's most likely not going to be a standard contract. So I highly recommend that you get legal advice on any contract that you're signing with a builder and especially with a volume builder. Many customers will assume that because they're they're looking at a contract that's a master builders association or a housing industry association contract, that it's a standard contract. And some authority that's over and above the volume builder company has determined the fairness or the suitability of this legal document for this process. Having reviewed some of these contracts myself though, I can find that they are they can really be heavily weighted in favor of the volume builder and have been edited to be that way. 
I've got an episode in season seven of the podcast about contracts and what to be aware of. I'll pop that link in the resources. We also include a lot more information when it comes to signing contracts inside Home Method as well. You know, I've seen a lot of people, particularly lately, get tripped up when working with a volume builder around contractual issues that are associated with cost and with timing. You know, they've had verbal discussions, for example, where they've been told that the price won't change um, on their project and that they won't have price increases passed on to them, that the price that they're signing is the price that they're signing. And then they've had also verbal conversations about due dates and deadlines and how their project's going to flow time-wise. Now, none of these verbal conversations are going to matter at all if your contract says something different. And anytime you have a challenge or a dispute during your project, it's your contract that you need to refer to and to follow. It sets out the expectations and the rules and, the, and of execution for your project and it describes the processes and what needs to be done should there be changes in, in price or in timelines. So you really want to request to see a draft copy of one of the builder's contracts prior to signing it, prior to paying your deposit. You're not going to be able to, of course, get a copy of your own contract at this point because what they'll do is they'll usually wait until you're ready to actually sign your contract in order to draft it up but you should be able to get a sample version of the one that they regularly use so that you can read it and you can review it and you can make sure that you understand it and nothing jumps out and you can seek any advice on it before you pay your deposit in that instance. When Then when yours is actually prepared, you want to factor in sufficient time at that point. You don't want to be racing to sign a contract. You actually want to factor in sufficient time to be able to get it reviewed legally and to get yourself really familiar with it as well. You don't want to handle your interactions with any builder, particularly a volume builder, casually, okay? Anything that's said on email, anything that's said verbally will not matter if it's not in the contract. And you also need to ensure that you are following the contract as well and that they are following the contract, okay? So often I see posts on Facebook where people are wondering why their site has sat with no activity for weeks or even months or the intended end date of their build has slipped past months and months ago with no notification from the builder regarding extensions of time. Everything that you need to know about the time and the cost of your project is included in your contract. So if clauses are not filled out as well, specifically for your project, then they're going to defer to the default of the contract conditions. So you need to understand those as well. With any custom build project, you know, this is where you have difference, of course, is that, you know, I recommend that you should be asking any custom builder that you're working with for a program or a schedule for your project. So you want to see a timeline of what will happen and when that will happen in your project. And of course, this is going to be much harder to access in a volume build, but your contract itself should mention time, should give start date, it should give end times, durations, all those kinds of things, and an indication of how long your build's going to take overall. That should all be in there contractually. And this is crucial information, especially if you're financing your project or you're renting a home and you need to understand, you know, and arrange your life to be able to move into your finished home when it's when it's done. You do not, under any circumstances, want to sign a contract that does not have contractual time indications in it, okay? So make sure you're familiar with your contract and you get that help and support to review it. Now, tip number seven, and this one may sound a little bit strange, but I really encourage you to meet your construction team. As I mentioned in the previous episode, most of your early dealings with most larger volume build companies is going to be with the sales consultant. However, that sales consultant is not going to be your site supervisor and chances are that your main, the person who's your main point of contact during the build process itself inside a volume builder company, I find that that often is not the site supervisor either. 
you know, many of these companies, they'll have an administrative structure of a team of people, then they'll run communications through cloud-based software, they give clients access to that, they advise through that of updates, request payments, they, they maintain regular communication through this kind of platform. But I'm a big believer that you actually need to meet the the individual person who is going to be running your home's construction, your own site supervisor, the person that's going to actually be standing on site, handing out the instructions on a day-to-day basis and, you know, overseeing how your home gets built and working with the people to make that happen. And then you need to work out if they meet your expectations as the person who is responsible for the construction of your home. Now, I'm not going to lie, your access to them, it may be buried under layers of layers layers and layers of administration and this may be difficult to actually make happen but I really believe that you should get to meet them. Far too often I've seen homeowners explain that everything was great except for their site supervisor and their site supervisor ended up being the belligerent, non-communicative, sloppy worker who really couldn't care less about how well the home is built, whether they're making mistakes and they're simply on a mission to get the home finished by a due date and that has made the whole build a nightmare. So I really encourage you to meet the person who is physically going to be building your home and overseeing the construction of your home, just like you would if this was a custom bespoke home with a smaller builder. Now, my tip number eight is to attend the site regularly and think about commissioning your own inspections. So remember I said in the last episode that many volume build companies, they like to keep you at arm's length. I recommend that you don't let your own project run that way. I've heard all sorts of horror stories about structural engineers who are who are paid to do inspections never actually getting out of the car to do the structural inspections on these types of projects of the framing not sitting on the slab edge properly because the dimensions don't match or the concreter didn't finish the slab properly and the concreter comes back later to sort of botch up the edge or they don't even worry at all and that that misalignment of frame edge and slab edge just gets hidden behind brickwork or under floor finishes. There's also been stories of framing being left out in the elements, getting super wet, not getting wrapped up quickly enough, and then the house getting lined with its internal lining and external cladding before anything has had the chance to dry out. So that's a total invitation to have mould growing in your walls. That, of course, can degrade your home and worse, it can make you and anyone else living in the home super unwell. So you do need to be on site regularly, ideally weekly, because these homes just move at a pace. They are built very, very quickly and you need visibility of what is happening on site with any builder, but especially with a volume builder because this home does get built much faster. So take your con- your contract drawings with you. Compare what you're getting on site to the contractual documents that you've signed. I've seen issues happen with substitutions, with changes being made on site without consultation, mistakes being made with plumbing setouts, window positions and sizes, all manner of things. And in many instances, even when mistakes are made, these projects will just keep going because speed is what makes them affordable and it's the driving metric in their delivery. So you need to be there reviewing things regularly and then also discussing them, you know, looking at your contract and seeing what your options are. Now, of course, your access, this getting this access to site, it's going to need to be discussed prior to signing your contract. And it's best uh, that you have this access to site organised as a, a regular meeting with your site supervisor where communication can happen immediately on site in person. If you're doing it after hours without them being there, um, that can delay a lot of resolution and handling of issues when things come up just because of the administrative layers that communication will have to travel through. 
Now, please don't do that thing of sliding through the site fencing in of an evening or on a weekend and then bombarding the building company with a raft of questions and complaints. Firstly, you will always need permission from the builder to be on site. It is legally their site. And secondly, it is super hard to maintain good quality and open communication if it's happening that way. All right. Now, in any build, it can be really worthwhile commissioning your own inspections at various stages, especially if you have no building experience and you're not sure what to look at on site to determine if things are being built well. If you hire an inspector, they of course can then attend these regular site meetings that you might be having or they can be hired to attend site at specific milestones for those inspections. It's worth noting though that if you do want to hire somebody to do these inspections on your behalf, you're going to need to clear that with your builder as well so that this third party can have access to site. And then you're also going to need to figure out how you're going to handle the feedback that the inspector provides to you about your build as the building inspector is going to have no clout and no control over the builder that you're working with, okay? The builder's contract is with you and they will not answer to your building inspector, all right? So you're going to need to navigate how are you going to then tra transfer that communication from your building inspector to you, to the builder, to ensure that work gets carried out based on those inspections. Now, my tip number nine, and this is a really important one, okay? Tip number nine is be willing to walk away. There are so many times that I see people describe how they are being treated by their builder, the state of their project and the quality of their build and I'm really shocked by what they're tolerating in their project. And this isn't a criticism of them. Please understand in no way that I'm suggesting that. I know that when you're out of your depth and you've got a lot of money invested and you don't feel you understand what's happening on site in your project to you, then it can be really difficult to know that you shouldn't have to tolerate what's going on. And I also know it can be incredibly stressful for some people to actually stand up for themselves, especially in an industry and a process that they don't have any familiarity with. I also think though that many who are building with a volume builder, they adopt a mindset of this. They say, well, look, this is all I can afford, so I just have to take what's dished up. And that can mean that they tolerate extraordinarily terrible treatment by their builder, a substandard build quality and a finished home that isn't well designed and isn't durable. I've heard people say that there's no other industry other than the construction industry that treats its clients with such contempt. And it is terrible that spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with someone doesn't guarantee you a great quality experience and outcome. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish there was a better process of auditing in the industry and a better process of policing in order to prevent the poor projects that many do endure. However, I learned, unfortunately, very early in my career, wide-eyed and very optimistic about, about what I was doing. It's like any other industry. There are some amazing people in it and then there are many companies and people who are purely driven by profit at all costs. And it's horrible to watch because they can be quite mercenary about something that homeowners hang a lot of dreams, hopes and aspirations on. And this happens at all levels of the industry. It doesn't seem to matter to them that people are investing a lifetime of savings or 30 years of debt in a home for their lifetime that ideally lasts generations. At the end of the day, it's just about money and control for some of these people. So I also think too that the industry is particularly challenging because most people creating their long-term family homes, they only do their project once. Um, so if a company does a bad job for you, you know, or their customer service is terrible, it's not like you're you were potentially going to buy from them again anyway 
And you definitely weren't going to do it anytime soon. You know, this is quite different from other industries where they're always trying to get repeat purchases. And I've seen this difference happen with people who are operating in this industry and are seeking to get repeat purchases. I worked for one. Mervac always wanted to sell one out of every five of its projects to repeat purchases. So that changed the entire way that they operated as a business. That's not the case for a lot of companies in this in this industry. You know, there's no compulsion for them to care about repeat purchases. They don't often happen. And the worst that you can do is you can tell everybody how terrible they are or you can take them to task over it legally or financially. But even that doesn't seem to prevent others from choosing the bad builders because I've seen many have the approach of, well, that may have happened to them, but it won't happen to us. And then I find too that this also sits alongside the fact that there's many that are building homes more regularly with these companies as an investor. Um, and, And as an investor, they usually then have lower expectations about the design and about the quality of the project. They have a higher priority around price. They never plan on living in the property. And as a rule, I find that we just don't build investment properties for tenants with the same expectations that we have for our long-term family homes. It's disappointing and it's sad that it happens, but it's a reality. So I find that investors aren't driving these companies to deliver better quality or better designs. They're driving them to deliver projects for a specific price point that makes their investment work financially. Now, of course... All of this that I have just shared with you is is part of why Undercover Architect even exists because this is the thing. If everyone learns that they can stop tolerating the substandard product and service and that they can demand better from these companies and from the industry overall, then it's going to have to naturally up its game. You know, the more educated that you are about what your project can can and should look like during the design process, in the design itself and during construction, the better chance that you have of seeing red flags, of not naively walking into these situations, of working with better builders and better companies and achieving a much better outcome in your finished home. And this ultimately will improve the industry overall. There's a saying that I'd love to share with you that I actually apply to a lot of my life and it definitely applies in these situations. It's by the Chief of the Army, Lieutenant General David Morrison, and it says... The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. So once you accept a terrible standard, you actually give permission for more of it to be dished up. And yes, I I know it can be extremely difficult and draining to consistently push for a better standard. I really get it. I've had this experience myself, go through it lots of times. I've spoken before on the podcast about how I believe that we're just being worn down further and further to accept mediocrity more and more in our lives. But if you are only doing this home project once and it's a big investment for you, then I promise you it's worth it, okay? Your tenacity and your determination in your own project and being the ambassador that your future home needs, it's going to pay dividends for you. And as part of that, okay, you have to be willing to walk away. You have to be willing to do what you need to to actually walk away and understand what's going to be legally and financially involved in doing that. In my experience, a horror build that goes on for six months or more, it's not going to be cleanly washed away by the act of you moving into your finished home and the whole thing being over with. What I see is that homeowners are often dealing with legal and financial battles well after the build is finished and then they're also dealing with long-term issues in their poorly built home. It's just not worth it, okay? So don't get caught up in a terrible process over concerns that you have about the costs you've already sunk into it or the distance that you've traveled down a particular path with a volume builder. 
And don't use these things as a justification for putting up with more terrible times just to get out the other side. Be willing to walk away or terminate contracts. And as I said, understand what that's going to mean for you legally and financially. And this leads on to my next tip, okay? So tip number 10 is to be prepared for what you should, what to do should things go pear-shaped. Now, at the time of recording this podcast episode, Porter Davis has recently gone into liquidation. Reports share that they have over 1,700 homes across Victoria and Queensland that are partially under construction. That's 1,700 homes. And according to newspaper articles, the liquidators said that it had 779 customers who have paid a deposit but whose projects haven't started yet. So reading through some of the articles, it's been heartbreaking and infuriating simultaneously. All of these poor clients with hopes and dreams and money tied up in projects that are now in limbo and all of those subbies and suppliers and tradies who are out of pocket as well. And I read one customer said this, they said, Porter Davis to me was a massive company. So many people would have thought they would never go into liquidation. And that right there is such a common and a mistaken misconception. You know, building with a volume builder, it's always been seen as the safe and certain choice. There's a perception that companies with this much work on, they're buffered somehow from what's going on in the industry and in the economy. And it's simply not true. If anything, they can be much more severely impacted by these issues because their profit margins are generally pretty tight, sometimes only one to 2%, and their scale and volume can make them a house of cards. Investigations are now commencing as to why Porter Davis were taking deposits on contracts so close to liquidation. You know, prices on particular ranges of homes, they were slashed by $20,000 to $50,000 and they were still being, these homes were still being advertised at the point that the liquidators moved in. And there's now concern that there's potentially hundreds of contracts that have been signed with deposits paid by these clients, but the insurance that's included in the contract price has not been paid by Porter Davis on those contracts. And so that means that those customers have no coverage. Porter Davis sites, meanwhile, they've been getting broken into, they've been getting ransacked, even flooded and set on fire with suspicions that unpaid tradies are seeking to compensate themselves or just potentially burn the whole thing down. And this isn't happening to Porter Davis, okay? The construction industry comprises over 25% of insolvencies each year. This financial year, it's been 30% of insolvencies has been in the construction industry. Now, given that the construction industry comprises only 10% of the GDP, this rate of insolvencies is disproportionate. And the construction industry insolvencies on average, they cost subcontractors, employees and the tax office about $3 billion a year in unpaid debts. And that's not including the homeowners that are left out of pocket with half-finished builds. In the work I do with custom residential building businesses, I've got another business, Live Life Build, and we work really closely with custom residential building businesses. And I see firsthand how many builders they turn up to Live Life Build and they don't know their numbers, they don't know how to manage their cash flow, they don't know how to accurately price their projects and they don't know how to properly run their business finances. And they think they've been doing fine. We turn them around very, very quickly though. We, we get them understanding their numbers. We get them knowing how to price their projects properly. We get them knowing how to run their business finances overall. The thing is though that this lack of knowledge is totally understandable because their building license, the training that they get for that, it equips them to be builders but it doesn't equip them to be business owners. And this is a massive failing in the licensing process of becoming a builder. 
Because at the end of the day, builders are handling hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes a lot more based on how many projects that they're doing at one time. They've often got their own home and their own family's finances on the line. And they've, of course, got their the home and the family finances of the clients that they're working with on the lines as well. And the last couple of years have definitely worsened this situation. You know, globally, we have seen supply chain issues impact all industries, including construction, uh, home builder that was introduced by the government to stimulate the, uh, the industry. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible choice. And it's brought on what's been called the cashless boom. It's crippled many builders uh, who signed fixed price contracts well before all the price rises. It's left poor clients out of pocket. And, and for many of these builders who have gone into liquidation, it's left their clients in the lurch with unfinished homes and their subbies and their suppliers unpaid. Now, I have people asking me, what about my builder's insurance? Isn't it going to protect me in these instances? Isn't this why I pay for builder's insurance for when my builder goes into liquidation or goes out of business or can't complete the contract? Builder's insurance that you pay when you sign your contract and you pay – and in, in a traditional contract, you pay your deposit. That's as different – it's a different sort of structure in a volume builder process. But you do pay – when you sign a contract, you pay builder's insurance. It's a very limited resource, Okay. Most claims on builder's insurance, they average around $50,000. Now, if you're recovering from a half-built home that has been worked on by a builder who is on the edge of liquidation and has not done a great job and has not been paying their people as well, then you recovering from that and moving on to the next builder, that can cost you a lot more than $50,000. So do not rely on builder's insurance as your safeguard should your project go pear-shaped. I always recommend that you understand what to do in these scenarios before you end up in a position with a builder who's gone into liquidation or where you might need to terminate a contract. Because if you're prepared for the worst case scenario, it's fantastic risk management and it's going to help you act quickly and more calmly should this actually happen to you. So some of the things that you want to review before you enter a contract and then also during your project. You also you always want to know how the progress claims are going to work and then where your build is at progress-wise in terms of what work has been completed, what you've paid for and what compliance certificates and inspections are actually legally required for approvals that have been carried out on the project and that and that those all of those compliance certificates have been happening as the project's been progressing. You also want to know at where you're at with your payments and how that compares to the progress on site and that other people are being paid for the work as well. You need to know how to terminate the contract, what's involved, what the legal process is and how you're going to navigate that should you need to. You also need to know what's going to happen if you need to get another builder on site to complete the work. So if somebody something happens halfway through the build, most likely you're going to find it's going to involve changes in your building approval. It's going to involve collecting contract plans and all of your approval documents, your certificates for the completed work to date, any compliance certificates, those kinds of things. And then in the instance of things going pear-shaped, you want to get legal advice immediately to understand your obligations your payment requirements, the contract requirements and how you're going to best end your relationship inside one contract and then continue the project via other means. So as I said, you know, please know that a volume builder, it's not necessarily the safest choice and just because they're a big company does not mean that they're necessarily financially stable. In any instance, understanding how you'll handle challenging circumstances should they arise will help you act more confidently in those situations.
And that's it. 10 tips to help you when building with a volume builder. Now, I'm not going to go over those 10 tips again, but if you do want to save them for future reference or review them again for yourself, remember you can grab a free downloadable transcript of this episode by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 274. That's the numbers 274. Now, lastly, I want to encourage you to keep this in mind, okay? What With whatever builder you plan to work with in your new build or your renovation. First, get yourself really ready for your project. Invest time and effort in researching and preparing for what your project is actually going to involve, okay? And there's loads of resources on Undercover Architect, including this podcast, to help you do just this. And I've got free resources and paid resources to help you and support you in this way. Then I really want to encourage you to ask loads of questions. Take your time, do your research, get educated and informed about the business that you're investing your money with, especially if you can't afford to lose it. And frankly, who can afford to lose it? Seriously, asking the right questions, it can save you so many headaches, so much drama, and it can save you money as well. One of my Home Method members, they actually shared recently that asking the right questions about her window quote, for example, it saved her $38,000. Not compromising on what she wanted or lowering the quality, just asking the right questions, which she's learned to do by being inside Home Method. Now, you can create your own safety in your project. You don't have to feel out of control. You don't have to feel swept along by whatever process is being offered up to you by whoever you're working with. Please don't make the excuses that it's too much to learn and don't outsource your agency to a designer or a builder who hasn't demonstrated that they can really take care of you and your investment. You're going to be living in your home a long time, okay? So a few months of getting really ready before you embark on this project journey, it's going to be a tiny blip on your radar and your future self is going to thank you for the work and the preparation that you do now I know it will. So remember, as I said before, there's a free downloadable PDF transcript of this episode that you can save off for later. There's also the links to all the resources I've discussed. I've included a a bunch of other blog um, posts and podcast episodes that I know are going to be helpful for you on this topic and in building a new home generally. You can find all of that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 274. And lastly, I've been talking about Home Method, you know, whether whether you're renovating or building new, if you would like more structured help and guidance and to feel more confident and in control as you learn the steps from start to finish of your project journey, and also, of course, how to create a functional, feel-good and fantastic home, then Home Method is definitely the place for you. And when you join Home Method, you'll also join a community who are incredible. They're super informed. They're amazing homeowners. They're very generous and share their journeys and their learnings along the way. And you'll also be able to access my personalized help and support in your project as well. I would love to see you inside Home Method and be able to help and support you in your project. You can head to www.homemethod.com.au for more information. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time. Just a reminder, all content on this podcast is provided by Undercover Architect for reference purposes and as general guidance. It does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in any circumstances, including but not limited to circumstances where loss and damage may result. The views and opinions of any guests on the podcast are solely their own and may not reflect the views of Undercover Architect. Undercover Architect endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or has become inaccurate over time. Mm